Hello and welcome to Everybody's National Parks. On this episode, Brian talks with David Quammen, author of both fiction and nonfiction and was the sole writer of National Geographic Magazine's May 2016 issue on Yellowstone in honor of the centennial of the National Park Service. He also published Yellowstone, A Journey Through America's Wild Heart in August 2016. Brian and David talk about the future of Yellowstone. Okay, I'm here with David Quammen. Uh, he's a uh, American science, nature, and travel writer and the author of 15 books, five of them fiction. He wrote a column called Natural Acts for Outside Magazine for 15 years. His articles have appeared in National Geographic, which we're going to talk about today, Harper's, Rolling Stone, New York Times Book Review, and many others. He is the uh, author, among others, of The Song of the Dodo and Spillover, which was uh, shortlisted for the Penn E.O. Wilson Literary Science uh, Writing Award in 2013. However, Today, we're very lucky to have David as we're going to talk about uh, his book and articles he wrote for National Geographic called Yellowstone, A Journey Through America's Wild Heart. Uh, David, welcome, and thank you for taking time. Thank you, Brian. Good to be with you. Uh, I'm going to start with a bit of a curveball here. So Yellowstone National Park, about 2.2 million acres, and, and aside from uh, basically the behemoths that we have in Alaska in terms of national parks, one of our largest uh, uh, national parks in the national park system. My question for you, uh, is Yellowstone National Park too small? Yes, it is too small. It's too small ecologically to support the populations of wildlife that we expect to see as citizens when we go to Yellowstone. Right. Um, it is a big national park, as you say, 2.2 million acres. It's wonderfully large, but we really need to recognize that um, Yellowstone National Park, with its straight-line borders, is part of a broader ecosystem. People now call it the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem. And after the park was established, it was recognized slowly but with increasing clarity and urgency that the park itself is not enough to support these populations of wildlife because they don't respect these straight-line boundaries. They move in and out of the park across those boundaries, and they need more land. Um, the elk, for instance, there are eight or nine major elk populations that occupy the Yellowstone area, and those elk migrate in and out of the national park, up and down between high elevation and low elevation seasonally. They need to be high in the green highlands of the Yellowstone Plateau during the summer to get fresh green grass. But when things get really cold and the snow is deep and the temperatures are way below zero, they need to migrate downward to their winter range. And most of that winter range lies outside Yellowstone National Park proper on other public lands or private lands within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So the whole thing functions as um, uh, not as a square box on the map, but as this great amoeboid-shaped thing that covers about 10 times the area of Yellowstone Park proper, about 22 million acres. And that's the ecologically functional unit. So 22 million acres. And so just give us a sense of the political geography of that 22 million acres. So obviously you have, uh, I'll get you started here. Obviously that encompasses Yellowstone National Park, Grand Tetons National right. Park. And then what else? Yes. Public lands, private lands? Public lands, private lands, lands with different public jurisdictional um, um, management uh, status, 
um, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem includes, as you said, two national parks, Yellowstone, Grand Teton, um, several wildlife refuges run by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, portions of six national forests under the U.S. Department of Agriculture within the national forest system, um, uh, portions of the Wind River Indian Reservation, portions of land managed by the Bureau of Land Management uh, within the Department of the Interior, and private lands, uh, also some state lands, um, and private lands, large um, privately held ranches, and a lot of little parcels um, held by individual private citizens. Um, all, all part of this ecosystem, all part of this great amoeba that, uh, that really needs to be able to function as one ecological system. And so that, um, that raises challenges, to put it politely. That raises problems of, uh, of the integration of management and crossing the boundaries and the, the interconnectedness of interests and concerns, um, all of which add up to, uh, to the Yellowstone experience. And Yellowstone is a great, um, a great center of biological diversity, is a great ecological entity. All these things are, are the, the wheels and and uh, gears that are spinning inside this great ecosystem. So, so there's the challenge there, and that's that's what we wanted to to talk to you about a bit from the perspective of a of a traveler, of a visitor to to Yellowstone. So, if if we skewed up to Alaska, I would imagine, I would I would guess that there are ecosystems surrounding, let's say, uh, Denali, but Denali does not get the anywhere near the level of visitation that a Yellowstone National Park gets. So you, you talked about this delicate ecosystem. We're going we're gonna to break this down a little bit over the uh, course of our chat. But uh, one of the biggest inputs, right, are the, are the millions of visitors, including, by the way, Danielle and me uh, uh, in December, the millions of visitors who are hitting the park every day. And I would imagine many of those visitors have the best intentions in, in mind. They, they want to experience uh, Yellowstone and all its grandeur and be as respectful as they can. But uh, your point, and this is to the point of, in your book of the paradox of the cultivated wild, is, is that irre- irreconcilable? Uh, all these millions of visitors hitting Yellowstone, is it just too much, too great of an input and a stress on this ecosystem? Right, right. The issue, as some of the managers put it, is the question of whether Yellowstone is being loved to death. People love Yellowstone. People love the idea of Yellowstone. Um, it's America's park. It's the world's park in some senses. Um, People want to come and see it, um, visit it, spend time there. And, and all of that attention, all of that affection, that interest adds up to really two categories of, um, of threat, of, of, of stress on the Yellowstone ecosystem. And those two are first, what you mentioned, visitors, annual visitors. And there are now more than four million visitors each year to Yellowstone. Um, they call it um, visitations, meaning you know some people go more than once. And if they if they come in June and go through the gate, and they come back in August, go through the gate, they get counted each time. So mm-hmm. there were more than four million last year, I believe, more than 4.2 million uh, independent visits of people to Yellowstone Park. And uh, and once they're there, they want to get around. Um, in most cases, they want to drive their own cars. They want lodging to stay for a few nights. Maybe they want to camp. They want to eat. Um, they they have a footprint, um, and they have expectations. 
Um, and that's one form of pressure. The other form of pressure on the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, which is um, also important to note, is that some people come and see this place and they say, great, we want to be part of this. We want to live there. We want to, we're, we're, you know, we're retiring from our jobs as, you know, a dentist and a, um, and a real estate broker or a, a lawyer and a school teacher in New Jersey or, or in Texas. And we're going to move to the West. We're going to move to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. We want to, we want to buy our home in the country and part of this great thing. So they can come out and, um, and maybe they buy a big ranch if a big ranch is available. But in most cases, they can't afford a big ranch. And what they buy is, is a little place. Maybe they buy 20 acres somewhere in Montana, Idaho, or Wyoming within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And they, uh, you know, they build a house and they put up a fence and a satellite dish and they have a dog and they have a driveway. And, uh, and that erodes the wildness of this wild ecosystem. Now, everybody comes from somewhere, and, and I came to Montana back in 1973 from somewhere else, and so I'm aware that it would be hypocritical for mm-hmm. any of us to say, I'm in the boat, so pull up the rope. And yet it's important for people to understand, both when they come to visit Yellowstone and if they get tantalized by the notion of coming to stay, having, having their house or having a house, if they're wealthy enough to say, oh, we have a house in Montana, um, that um, that contributes to the eroding of the very things that attract them. Uh, but um, with the visitation, with the 4.2 million visitors to Yellowstone, that is a, that is the number of people who visit Yellowstone Park proper. And that, as you suggest, Brian, um, implies and entails a very specific set of challenges and impacts on the park and the ecosystem that managers more and more have to think about. So I guess that's the, that's the, the kind of stresses. Is there a way to reconcile this? Have we just not figured out better practices and technologies or is this just something that's always going to be irreconcilable that human beings are going to have some sort of ecological footprint. And even though they're of the best intentions, uh, the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, and then you know, at its heart, Yellowstone National Park, it it, it just can't uh, it just can't sustain this. And I guess the, the follow up to that is, perhaps we should get in and talk a little bit about some of the things you write about, uh, including the creeping crisis of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in terms of management right. of the elk and the grizzly bear conservation, bison management. You know, how does that all work? Well, okay, let's take those in turn. The creeping crisis. Um, uh, is a phrase that the uh, lead scientists for um, the uh, Yellowstone National Park used when I interviewed him. The lead scientist at the time that I wrote the special issue was uh, a wonderful fellow named Dave Halleck. And that was his phrase, the creeping crisis. Um, and he told me that he feared some days he would get up and say, oh my God, we're losing this place. We're losing Yellowstone. And what he meant was that there was no single... Um, acute crisis that in the next short period of time was going to destroy Yellowstone. But there's this creeping crisis that is a combination of incremental um, stresses or trends on the park, uh, challenges that um, combined are, um, are threatening to undermine um, and, 
and destroy the greatness of, of Yellowstone and what we expect from Yellowstone. And you mentioned some of them, the problems of bison management, the problem of grizzly bear restoration, the reintroduction of wolves and the problem of managing the, the politics and the economics as well as the ecological aspect of wolves, the problem of disease um, uh, coming to the ecosystem in wildlife, the problem of invasive species, the problem of climate change, the problem of increasing visitor pressure, all of those things combined are what Dave Hallett called the creeping crisis. And then he and I discussed, and I continued to research over the course of just about two years, um, all these different aspects of uh, the creeping crisis and how they work individually, how they came into existence, these different factors, these different challenges, and what it looks like when you add them up, when you tally them up now into one total. Um, before that, you mentioned uh, the, the impact footprint of visitation itself. And that's something that the managers, including, most importantly, Dan Wenk, the superintendent of Yellowstone National Park, have been thinking about very carefully. And to their great credit, one of the, and Dan Wenk has told me this personally a, a couple of times, um, to their great credit, they recognize that the supply of the Yellowstone experience, wild Yellowstone, wondrous, magnificent Yellowstone with its wildlife and its vistas and its scenery and its, if you go into certain places, its sense of um, majesty and solitude. The supply of the Yellowstone experience is finite, mm-hmm. but the demand is continually increasing. I mean, it has increased hugely over the last hundred years. Back hundred years ago, there were something like 36,000 um, visitors in the course of a year. That was right after the park was first opened to, uh, you know, to to automobile travel and Model T Fords started bringing people in. 36,000 visitors in the course of a year. Um, And then uh, 50 years after that, 1966, uh, the park was getting about 2 million visits and now it's getting more than 4 million. So visitation has grown by 100% since 1966. And the and the trends are are um, that it will continue to grow probably even faster than than um, in the past um, because there's more international travel there's more more affluence in places like China there are a lot of Chinese people now who are coming who have the money and the interest to come and see Yellowstone there are a lot more tour buses coming into the park um, each year um, and so there's this there's this increasing pressure of visitation. But Dan Wank, as I said, recognizes that the supply of the quality experience is finite, even though the demand is on this trend of, of uh, relentless increase. And so what's the solution Dan Wank has to ask himself? And what he says is that, well, we cannot increase the supply. Um, and um, if, we, if we pretend that we can, what we do is denigrate the quality of the experience. And so we have to deal with the fact that the resource, the experience is finite. We've got this increasing demand. And so what's the logical conclusion, the logical necessity? It is that there will have to be some sort of control of the delivery of the experience. That's fancy words for saying there may be constraints on who can come in when you may in the future need a reservation to enter in Yellowstone national park. 
Um, you may not be allowed to drive your private vehicle into the park. You might be required to park in a lot outside the park and get on a shuttle bus. Um, it might turn out that um, uh, there's a lottery of some sort to get into Yellowstone. Now, these are sort of radical propositions, but it's the kind of thing that, that Dan Wank has to think about. He's not proposing any of these things for next year, but he realizes he has to to think about these things. For instance, if you want to float the Grand Canyon, um, the Colorado River through the Grand Canyon in Grand Canyon National Park, if you want to get on that river, and you probably know this as well as I do, you may have done it, I've done it, um, you, you put in for a permit. You, right. you, you participate in a, essentially a lottery or you stand in line um, over a period of years before you get a permit to take your kayak or your raft down through Grand Canyon on the Colorado, because that is an experience that is very finite. You can't have four million people going through the Grand Canyon every year. It would be, um, it would just be unsustainable. It would be a nightmare. Um, so there are already, in some places, these sorts of um, rationings of the experience that is going to have to be considered for Yellowstone sometime in the near or midterm future. Well, well, I would say that's not that radical. Those practices you describe are, uh, you know, there's a shuttle bus service at Zion National Park, and more or less you can't drive your own private car in Zion. Uh, there's right. a lottery system for the High Sierra camps at Yosemite. Uh, we all just right. can't roll in and, and do the High Sierra circuit. And I, and I don't know what, what uh, I don't want to put words in Superintendent Wank's uh, mouth, but uh, it seems as though, you know, at other parks, we were in Virgin Islands National Park, and it seems there's a sacrificial beach where that's where they'll funnel uh, a lot of the cruise ships can go spend time at that beach, but they uh, uh, but that keeps the pressure off some of the other more pristine beaches. Will there be the same thing with hiking trails and the same thing with kind of the uh, caldera and, and different volcanoes? So uh, it, it seems like some of those practices are in place. Yes, yes, absolutely right. Zion, Yosemite, as well as Grand Canyon, you're absolutely right. Um, and that has been slow in coming to Yellowstone because um, because Yellowstone is bigger than those places. It can sustain more people, and because it is the most famous and the most you know venerated of the U.S. national parks, and so it's maybe a little bit more difficult to entertain these ideas. And I don't want to put any words in Dan Wank's mouth either. Um, so, you know, these are things that he is ruminating about, and he's shared those ruminations with me, what sort of proposals he's going to make or what sort of proposals uh, whoever is managing the park in the future makes. Um, we will see when those proposals arrive. But we as citizens um, and, and as people who love Yellowstone um, and want Yellowstone to be Yellowstone, we have to be prepared to um, to accept those kinds of um, marginal limitations. Um, not everybody can visit the White House on a given day who shows up in Washington, D.C. Mm. I'm sure that, you know, there are tickets for White House tours and, and there's, there's presumably a cap on that per day. Um, and, uh, and yet that's America's house. Well, likewise, this is America's great park, but it will continue to be great if we don't recognize that it is a finite space 
and that the quality experience um, is finite also. Well, well, that's the good news. I, I would imagine, just like us, or, or the average patron company Yellowstone wants to do the right thing, and there's always a few bad actors, but uh, everyone wants to do the right thing. So some of the ideas I'd love for you to convey to some of the visitors and maybe you can weave in some stories about where things got went off the tracks. But, uh, you know, what can they do to make sure they're good stewards and still enjoy the time there? And I'm um, pointing to the, uh, the the sportsmen who maybe unwittingly introduced lake trout into Yellowstone Lake and really uh, really did a number on the cutthroat trap, which, of course, well, I, I won't take it from you, but that, that affected things right down the chain, right? So uh, what are some things that folks can do and maybe paint that picture with what happened with the uh, with the lake trout? Well, uh, let's take those separately. One is the issue of lake trout as a as a, a glaring instance of the problem of invasive species, and that um, and then we can come back to sort of the average experience for the average visitor and and what some of the um, responsibilities as well as expectations for that person or that family should be. Um, lake trout. Uh, okay, so um, Yellowstone Lake, the Great Lake at the center of Yellowstone National Park, is a very important place. It's a big rich lake um, that is uh, sort of the aquatic heart of the ecosystem. Uh, bald eagles depend on it. Grizzly bears depend on it. Uh, beaver depend on it in ways that I'll describe. One of the ways they depend on it is, or have depended on it, is that Yellowstone Lake is um, is a great repository, or, or has been a great repository, of Yellowstone the um, Yellowstone subspecies of cutthroat trout. Cutthroat trout are the native trout of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, brown trout, brook trout, rainbow trout, lake trout, these are all exotics. These are these are visitors that have been brought in. People are sometimes surprised to learn that even rainbow trout are not native out here. The native fish is the cutthroat trout. So the Yellowstone lake subspecies of that um, lived in the lake in great abundance and fed on the food chain that they found in the lake. And then um, and then they would go up into the little feeder streams that, that drain into Yellowstone Lake in the spring and spawn there. And they would pile up in great abundance in these spawning um, streams. And some of those fish-eating animals that I mentioned, grizzly bears, um, uh, coyotes, uh, uh, otters, river otters, um, uh, bald eagles, would come and feed on the spawning cutthroat trout, and it would be a huge um, nutritional um, a bounty for them, a huge component of their annual diet to be able to eat these trout in the spring. And then some um, some knucklehead, probably in the 1980s, um, planted lake trout from the Midwest, from the Great Lakes, the upper Midwest area, um, planted lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. Um, it's a complicated story because the the lake trout probably came from another lake in Yellowstone just across the Continental Divide, um, Lewis Lake, in which lake trout had been planted by the U.S. Fisheries Service back at the beginning of the 20th century. So it's not just um, knucklehead individuals. Sometimes it's knucklehead institutions that um, make these mistakes. Uh, and in those days, it was thought that planting trout all over the West planting fish in waters that didn't have certain fish was a great way to increase, you know, recreational opportunities for, for humans. So, um, lake trout were planted in Lewis Lake, um, by the U S fishery service, we think. 
And then someone in the 1980s said, well, if they're good in Lewis Lake, they'd be good in Yellowstone Lake, too. And someone seems to have carried maybe a bucket of fingerlings, nobody knows for sure, um, across the Continental Divide, only 10 or 15 miles, and dumped them into Yellowstone Lake. They took hold in Yellowstone Lake. They thrive, these lake trout, and they grow to be big fish. They grow to be, you know, 20 or um, uh, 20 or 30 inches long, four, five, six pounds in Yellowstone Lake. And I think they grow much bigger in the Great Lakes. Um, but big fish, bigger than the average cutthroat. Um, and uh, they competed with and preyed upon cutthroat trout and essentially replaced cutthroat trout in Yellowstone Lake. So the lake trout now thrive in Yellowstone Lake, and the cutthroat have crashed. They've almost, they at a certain point a few years ago, they had almost entirely disappeared. Consequence uh, of that, well, in the spring, there are no cutthroats spawning in those little streams. Uh, are there lake trout spawning in those little streams? No, because lake trout spawn in deep water. They're spawning at the bottom of Yellowstone Lake. So the grizzly bears and the coyotes and the otters and bald eagles that were depending on that food resource are suddenly um, uh, suddenly out of luck. That resource is just not showing up. So it's still an, another in a combination of factors that have made it harder to be a grizzly bear in Yellowstone National Park, the planting of lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. Now the, the Park Service is working very hard now um, to try and suppress the population of lake trout by gill netting them and killing them uh, in order to um, allow the cutthroat trout to recover. That's, a, that's an active program. Every summer, uh, they have fishing boats out on Yellowstone Lake, uh, commercial fishing boats from the Great Lakes on contract that are, uh, that are uh, netting and killing these lake trout, dumping them back into the lake. Is that controversial? Yes, a little bit for people who don't understand the logic. Um, why not, uh, you know, why not harvest them commercially? Uh, well, for two reasons. One, it would be much more difficult and costly and probably wouldn't meet um, the standards of um, food sanitation to try and get those, cutthro- get those lake trout um, processed. And secondly, you would be taking nutrients out of the lake, and by killing the fish and putting them back in the lake, you leave those nutrients in the lake for other creatures to use them. Um, so that, that's one of the nightmarish um, uh, human-caused disruptions of the ecosystem that the Park Service uh, is now doing its best to deal with. So let's just chase that back. One knucklehead fisherman, sportsman, uh, and a misgu- well-intended but misguided uh, park policy from years ago. And it cast- Not park policy, U.S. 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 Fishery Service Fish- policy. Fishery Service policy. Uh, then you have a uh, it cascades down to affecting not only the food chain for the the ecosystem, but obviously it, I'm sure those con- commercial fishermen contractors are not cheap, right? So that it uh, it affects taxpayer dollars. It also affects uh, your ability to enjoy the lake. I'm sure that's that, you know the fishing on the lake now, uh, in terms of you're trying to uh, to try to land catch and release cutthroat trout. You you write about how. Not too long ago, you could catch and release cut, uh, cutthroat all day long, and now you're lucky if you see uh, many, if at all. Uh, so it just is a uh, you know kind of the butterfly that flaps his wing across the world in a hurricane. I mean, it's all happening right there in the ecosystem. But right, we you know one again. One fix is don't be don't be that person bringing in invasive species at the at the very at the very least. But 
uh, you know, you, you've touched on this, the interconnectedness of ecology and policy. Uh, so maybe talk a little bit about the uh, the slaughter of, of bison in terms of the bison migration and how, how that affects – how that affects the park aesthetics, but, uh, you know, what's going on on the margins of the park. Right. Okay. Um, well, Yellowstone, um, played a great role in the rescue of the American bison. As everybody knows, um, the millions and millions of bison that lived in the West, um, in, um, you know, before, um, Europeans showed up, um, were almost entirely eradicated by massive commercial, um, and, uh, and completely irresponsible um, uh, recreational hunting, people shooting bison for, from trains in the, in the period just after the Civil War, so that by about the 1880s, the bison were almost gone in the West. Um, but uh, a handful, just a few dozen or a few hundred, survived in certain pockets of uh, the Rocky Mountains, and uh, some of them were in Yellowstone, some were brought to Yellowstone, and uh, and and a herd was um, was nurtured in Yellowstone to bring back the bison. There was even um, essentially um, domestic, pseudo-domesticated, semi-domesticated breeding and ranching of Yellowstone, of bison in Yellowstone, in the northeast corner of the park, the Lamar Valley, uh, something that's still called the Buffalo Ranch, where bison were, um, were, were fed hay and were brought into corrals during the winter fed there and were left out to range during the summer and the herd was nurtured back doing that. Um, so it got to the point then where bison had recovered. Um, Yellowstone is not optimal habitat for them because again, it gets so cold in the winter. I should back up and, and um, make clear to people who don't know that part of what makes Yellowstone Yellowstone is that there is a plateau that rises up above a volcanic hotspot and, and results in Yellowstone being um, at an elevation averaging 8,000 feet. So it's this great big pustule rising above the surrounding land in um, the northern Rockies, that corner of Wyoming and Montana. Um, it's, this, it's this high plateau, 8,000 feet average, um, which means that in the summer it's very green and cool, and in the winter it's very white and cold. And bison in the winter want to migrate out of those cold snowy highlands and get down somewhere where they can uh, they can push through the snow and they get and get to a little grass um, and survive so you've got the bison recovered the numbers come back um, another thing that happens is that humans eradicate wolves um, in the 1920s so one of the predators on bison has disappeared um, they're being protected in the park and then numbers go back up. They start spilling out of the park, particularly in the winter. And in an average year now, they spill out particularly along the northern border of Yellowstone National Park. That means coming down into the state of Montana uh, to lower elevations around the town of Gardner, Montana, which is the northern gateway to Yellowstone Park. And the, um, the Yellowstone River Valley. Um, a beautiful um, um, bottomland river valley uh, through which the Yellowstone River flows out of the park, flows north, flows past the town of Livingston, Montana, and onward to its um, convergence with the Missouri. Uh, so bison spill out across the park boundary into the state of Montana. Now, here's another um, 
human-caused problem. When cattle were brought, when European cattle were brought to the West, um, at one point they brought a disease with them, a bacterial disease called brucellosis, um, which causes cattle to abort their calves. And therefore, it's commercially um, a very negative factor. Um, that brucellosis was transferred to the bison. It was also transferred to the elk, because they're closely enough related, all of them ungulates, herbivorous ungulates. And uh, so now bison carry this bacterial infection. The elk carry it too. And um, and the, the ranching community and the agricultural departments of the three states have worked very hard to establish brucellosis-free cattle ranching systems. Um, because that's, there's a great um, uh, economic necessity to do that. It's a devastating disease if it gets into cattle, uh, commercially devastating. Uh, so the cattle of Montana, to take the most um, uh, important um, state in this particular picture, the cattle of Montana are certified brucellosis-free. The Department of Livestock, or the, uh, yeah, the Department of um, livestock in um, Montana uh, are determined to keep it that way. Yellowstone bison are now not wildlife as far as the state of Montana um, is concerned. They are livestock. So when they spill out of Yellowstone Park across the boundary into the state of Montana, um, they're unwelcome. They are slaughtered because they're concerned. Uh, the concern is that they're bringing brucellosis with them and that there's a chance that they will pass the brucellosis back to the um, to the domestic cattle from whom it originally came. Um, so um, so there are bison uh, that are rounded up and put in corrals and slaughtered um, um, every year uh, coming out of Yellowstone National Park because of the fear that um, that they will spread brucellosis. That's the brucellosis situation um, with the bison. It's very controversial. Um, again, um, and some people feel like bison should be allowed to escape from Yellowstone, to go to the lowlands that they need, and to, and to be considered wildlife in the state of Montana. And they argue that it's completely illogical to demonize the bison when you don't demonize the elk who are carrying the same disease and who also are crossing the boundaries. Um, but that um, uh, that is partly explained by the fact that um, uh, elk hunting is a, is very popular and it's got huge commercial um, significance in these states. So the elk have a lot of friends. They have a constituency that the bison don't have, namely elk hunters. So David, what you've described is um, a policy problem where there's really there's really no apparent answer. On one hand, when you talk about the slaughter of the bison. Uh, it can seem, from one perspective, cruel and unfair. At the same time, you know we're a family of meat eaters, and food safety is important. And so you can see some of the rancher's perspective too. Just someone who's kind of dropping in from from the outside. And uh, I think you probably have a lot of that with um, with the wolf situation too. So you touched on this a little bit, but the the, the wolf conservation—it's a, a success story, but it's. And you wrote about this a bit. It is not without its own controversy. So you want to talk a little bit about the uh, the wolf conservation yeah. story? Yes, right. And all of these all of these issues, Brian, have um, you know have two sides or have many sides. And um, and it is important to understand the um, 
the pressures on the people who make a living out here, um, the ranchers in Montana and others, they have legitimate concerns and they have legitimate interests. And um, and they, the best of them, certainly are stewards of the land. So, yeah, it's important to understand where they are and how they see these things. Now, wolves is another, uh, another issue. Um, wolves were brought back, as I mentioned, in 1995. Uh, maybe I didn't mention it, but they were eradicated in the 1920s. And then they were reintroduced by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to Yellowstone National Park in 1995 in cooperation with the National Park Service. And um, 31 wolves from Canada um, um, with similar ecological and genetic backgrounds to presumably the original wolves were brought in and um, introduced to Yellowstone. And they they thrived and multiplied and and, uh, formed packs and, and more packs. And they're now something like, I think, at least 500 wolves in the, in the northern Rockies and more than 100 wolves in 10 or 11 packs in Yellowstone National Park, uh, which is great, which is great. And so they um, they help with the problem of overabundant ungulates. Um, they kill elk, they, kill, uh, they take bison calves, and they take uh, winter weakened or winter killed bison, um, and they... Uh, uh, they play their ecological role in the ecosystem, and that's a complicated story, um, but a very interesting one. And they also spill outside of the park, and they've dispersed throughout um, Montana and uh, also Idaho and Wyoming. And now they have been um, delisted, so it is up to the states to manage those um, those wolf populations within the state boundaries outside of the park. Um, and in Montana, that involves um, a hunting season. It's legal to hunt and even to trap wolves in the state of Montana. Um, wolves are very different from grizzly bears because they reproduce very quickly. Grizzlies reproduce very slowly. So there is an ongoing harvest of wolves. Um, I'll put harvest in quotation marks. Um, there are wolves killed legally every year, and, uh, and yet wolves continue to thrive and to multiply uh, and that seems to be very sustainable in the state of Montana. Um, uh, some people feel um, that no wolves should be killed. Some people feel that all the wolves should be killed. Biologists generally feel that it's um, it's all right in terms of population biology to um, to hunt, trap, kill a certain number of wolves every year because of their reproductive uh, capacity, their great um, ability to um, to multiply. Um, and if you're a rancher, then you don't want wolves on your property, hmm. um, unless you are participating in some sort of a program. And there are these programs in the state of Montana where there are positive incentives. There are costs to having predators um, on the land where you run livestock, um, but there also can be um, incentives too. And that takes us into maybe a, a you know a more complicated subject you don't want to go into. But but there are some organizations that actually uh, pay ranchers for um, allowing wolves to to den on their property, pay them a premium on the, uh, the price of the, the beef that they raise. So um, all of these things can be worked out to a great degree if people listen to one another, listen to one another's concerns, and use some imaginative and flexible mechanisms for trying to make wildlife and um, uh, and people and the economic activities that uh, people engage in um, compatible on the landscape. So that's a that's a great um, 
a great point to to wrap up and and sum up our conversation. And again, thanks, David. Uh, but you know, we we talked about all these challenges that are affecting the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, Yellowstone National Park. But a lot of our listeners, um, you know, they're they're thinking about. And again, I would imagine a lot of the a lot of the folks who uh, will be picking up your book, Yellowstone: A Journey Through America's Wild Heart. Uh, I imagine they're they're looking to visit Yellowstone. So, what are some what are some positive stories? What, what what's some optimistic stories about how we can pull through this and make sure that we're being respectful stewards of Yellowstone? That Yellowstone's around for another hundred years, and and it's going to be maintained as best as we can. What gives you hope? Well, um, the the um, the quality of management of the park, the wisdom that uh, and the patience that are put into it and the results that they are getting give me some hope. The grizzly bear population is much larger than it was back in 1975. Uh, there's still disagreement about how many bears exactly there are because grizzly bears, like most wildlife, are difficult to count. But no one doubts that it, it has come back, bounced back from its dangerous historic lows in the late 1960s, early 70s. We need to keep that on track. We need to do whatever is necessary to preserve the large viable grizzly bear population in Yellowstone Park. It's really, um, it's the it's the iconic species. It's the signature species of that park. Um, Yellowstone is the only place in the heartland of the American West where there is a viable grizzly bear population. So that's that's chore number one, and everybody should be concerned about that, um, and people should be guardedly optimistic about that, but continue to watch that situation. Uh, the wolves are back. That's a success story. You can go to Yellowstone and you can see wolves uh, if you um, uh, if you get up early in the morning and you go to the right place uh, and bring your binoculars or bring a spotting scope. You can watch um, watch packs of wild wolves moving across the landscape, um, stalking elk or whatever, and it's a it's a thrilling experience. It's a great privilege. Um, you can see all these other wondrous species. Uh, I think one of the things that I'd like to touch on as we as we end, Brian, is something you mentioned earlier, which is how do how does a person assure that he or she is a good visitor, a good friend to Yellowstone when you come out? And um, in addition to not being that uh, knucklehead who who moves lake trout into a place where they shouldn't be, there are simpler, um, much simpler and basic things that people should keep in mind if you're a good visitor to Yellowstone. First of all. Um, come there, if you come in your private car, come there to move slowly and um, and savor the landscape and savor the wildlife. And don't be in a hurry to get from point A to point B. You will encounter traffic jams in Yellowstone if you come in the summer. Those traffic jams will be, will be bear jams and bison jams, people stopping their cars to get out and look at the wildlife. And, and that's part of the experience. It slows everything down. But uh, even though there is this mass of cars where people have pulled over, sometimes not very judiciously, um, that's part of the experience. So, so be patient. Get out. Take a look at it. See what people are looking at. Do not walk up to a bison. Do not walk up to a bear. Um, uh, you know, Every year there's a... a an incident or a few incidents where somebody gets too close to a dangerous form of wildlife and gets hurt. Sometimes the animal also gets hurt. Don't be that person who does that stupid thing. Um, and, uh, and go 
to the place, go to some of the places where other people don't go. Go to some of the um, the, le- the less famous corners of Yellowstone. If you come to Yellowstone and go into the gate and drive straight for Old Faithful and stand there with 4,000 other people for 90 minutes and wait and watch it erupt and then get back in your car and get back onto the cloverleaf that now exists and the four-lane highway that now exists around Old Faithful, and you then hurry to drive out of the park, you would have been better off watching Old Faithful on YouTube. That yeah. is not what I would recommend as the Yellowstone experience. Go to the corners of the park where you see wildlife, where where not everybody is going at a particular time. Um, get out of your car. Walk around a little bit, but walk around carefully. If you walk more than 50 feet from your car, carry bear spray and be aware that uh, grizzly bears are dangerous. Um, do not feed the animals. Do not carry smelly, savory food with you. Um, all of these um, tips are available in the park literature. But the general point I'm making is that um, to be a friend of Yellowstone and enjoy it, come, be patient, be a little bit energetic, be curious, get out of your car. But when you get out of your car, don't do anything foolish that endangers yourself or the wildlife. And see some of the corners of Yellowstone that go beyond the few most famous things that you've heard about. Discover this place because it's got it's got a it's got a thousand wonders. Yeah, we Daniel and I and we've said this on our other podcast for other parks, but uh and it's true here as well, is obviously if you want to see Old Faithful, you should see Old Faithful. But if you get away from the beaten track, the main uh the main tourist centers and, and they you don't have to go that far. And you get on a hiking path, you can suddenly quickly get away from people and then by by extension you're putting much less stress on the park if you're on a literally a less trodden path um, so I, I think that's all great advice and about being a great steward of the park and more of a partner of the park than just a patron of the park and thinking how one can partner and, and i'll just end with this because i thought you described this so well in your book you know th- there seems to me there's been no one uh golden age of yellowstone where we had it all right. You described this about there was, oh, there's always been issues, right? We've, we have not gotten it right at times, whether it was dubious concessionaires, whether it was wildlife management or some of the things we talked about on this podcast. Uh, but we've so far, we've managed to kind of unplug some things that uh, are, are backtrack from some wrong paths that we've gone down and try best to figure out uh, how best to carry on the, the, the Yellowstone experience for everyone else. So I thought that was uh I thought that was nicely described and put things in perspective for us that this is all a, it's still a work in progress, right? So I think we're, that, that's what we're all trying to work through right now. It is absolutely. It is a work in progress. And we've learned a lot. We've made a lot of mistake, mistakes over the decades in managing Yellowstone as with our other parts. Um, and we've corrected a lot of those mistakes. Some of those mistakes we can't correct. But in, in a lot of ways, Yellowstone is more intact and more magnificent now than it has been in many, many decades. So yes, people should come and and see it and enjoy it and, and become um, become a friend in the deepest sense of of Yellowstone and and support efforts to um, to do what's necessary and to keep it as great as it is. 
I agree. Well, David Quammen, again, thank you very much for your time. Uh, his book, Yellowstone, A Journey Through America's Wild Heart, uh, please take a look at that when you're considering Yellowstone as well as some of his other uh, his writings and books in uh, the May 2016 issue of National Geographic uh, and some of his other writings on the great outdoors. Uh, uh, David, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Brian. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, you're getting this message out to your listeners. No, you bet. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for listening to Everybody's National Parks. Please tell your friends, send us your comments, write a review on iTunes, like us on Twitter, Facebook. We'd also love to hear from you from the parks that you're visiting. So please tag us at hashtag Everybody's National Parks on Instagram from the parks that you're visiting. Most of all, enjoy exploring the national parks with your family. Bye for now.